Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm joined here again today virtually by our producer Jimmy. Hi Jimmy. Hi Steph. <laughs> and our special guest uh, Dr Kirsten Mills. Hi Kirsten. Hello. Um, and today this is the first of a sort of semi little series that we're going to be doing um, which we're calling teen movies <laughs> teen movies based on classic literature. So I think we've got, say, four lined up for us to talk about, and today is the first of those four, and we're going to be talking about the classic 1999 flick, 10 Things I Hate About You, which was delightful. I rewatched it last night. There's a spoiler about my opinions about it, but I think it's just delightful. Um, Jimmy, we might start with you. What do you think about 10 Things I Hate About You? Okay, well, I mean, I, I really liked it. And what's really sad is I suppose I remember watching it when it came out of the cinemas and I was, actually, <laughs> I was roughly the age of the, uh, you know, the characters in, I think it might have been a little bit older than the characters. So I it was, was about the same age. <laughs> yeah. So it was completely, you know, my generation and everything about it, you know, uh, reminds me of high school and, and um, uh, what it was like to <laughs> be around during that period. But what really struck me this time, like I rewatched it again um, to prep for this, podcast and what really struck me about it this time is how funny it still really is you know it, it kind of holds up really well in terms of the comedy itself um none, none of those jokes were kind of you know you know how sometimes when you watch old films again you cringe at the things that you used to find funny or you just think oh my god i can't believe i used to enjoy this i mean i had that very much that same experience with um that film that i used to love um i don't know whether anybody remembers called reality bites with uh, winona Ryder and, and um ethan Hawke. And I remember um, watching at the time thinking, oh, what a wonderful, you know, brilliant film. And then 10 years later, I watched it again. I went, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I like this film. It's, it's awful. But I didn't have that experience this time around. I thought, oh, it's actually really enjoyable and um, actually very laugh out loud funny, uh, which I, I really enjoyed as well. And it was kind of uh, really interesting, I think, to see some of those actors who are now actually quite famous um, in their younger stage. So, you know, you, so you've, you have um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, you've got Heath Ledger. Um, Julia Stiles is in there too and so you know it's, it's interesting to see them so young and you forget how young they were to begin with but I suppose you know my, my history with the film is kind of a little bit of a strange one as well because I went into this um, going through a particular phase so during the 90s there were a lot of rom-coms and especially teenage rom-coms uh, and I went through a big you know trend with them so I used to watch a lot of them and this was just another one on that long list. But the problem with it was that I didn't watch the trailer. I had no idea what this film was about at all. So I went into it having no expectations about the film. And I'm sitting there and I think around about the 15 minute mark, I just thought, why do I know this story? I thought, this is really odd. I, I know this story. And then I thought, if this happens next, then I really do know this story. And it did. And I went, oh my God, it's the Taming of the Shrew. Uh, so it took me, I think about half an hour to realize, oh, it's the Taming of the Shrew. So I actually went to the film not knowing that it was a Shakespeare adaptation. And so watching it again this time, knowing that it's a Shakespeare adaptation, I think took a different spin to it because I was actually able to pick up on a lot of the references and a lot of the really interesting ideas that um, the film itself um, was playing on. All right, Kirsten, what do you think about 10 Things I Hate About You? I know you just, I think you just finished watching it, so it's very fresh for you. I did. I finished it about half an hour ago. Um, but that said, I watch it... Uh, periodically again and again, you know, every now and then, every few months, I'm like, I think it's about time for another 10 things I hate about you session. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of my favorites. And I agree with Jimmy. It's just persistently funny. Uh, it, it's dated in all the right ways. Um, much like Clueless. Um, it feels like its own little bubble, a kind of fantasy version of the nineties that somehow rings really true still. Um, so we can enjoy it for that nostalgic look back. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it's not dated in a, in a way that makes it irrelevant now. If anything, it's more relevant. I think it's doing some um, wonderfully progressive things compared to um, what's, what some, especially teen films are doing these days. Uh, it's just, it's just so good. Honestly, it's one of my favorites. Um, when I first saw it, I was, I think I was in year nine. Yeah, because about two years later, I actually studied it in school as an adaptation of Taming the Shrew. Um, so that was interesting. I remember everyone was really excited because it's such a new film. <laughs> we were doing it in school and suddenly school became a lot more interesting. 
Um, so that, that was really good. And I think um, we will talk about, I, I think, you know, what it does with the adaptation more in a minute, but I just, I think it's such an intelligent adaptation. And I think, um, you know, like Jimmy was saying that it took him, you know, half an hour into the film to realize that it was an adaptation. I love how much um, it rejects the Shakespeare source as much as it embraces it. Um, and I think much like, or it does that even more so than Clueless does with Emma. Um, it, it seems to respect its source and love its source while also um, changing a lot about it and rejecting that and making, it's very much its own film. And I think that's partly why it's so successful um, because it really is its own film. It's not just an adaptation of another text. Yeah, one thing that um, struck me when I was watching it last night was, um, as Kirsten says, how progressive it is. So there's a lot of um, sort of self-aware kind of contemplation of race. I'm thinking about the um, the scenes in the classroom with Mr Morgan where he, Cat um, is objecting to the fact that they have to read all these dead white men and why can't they read some women? And then he points out, well, actually, wouldn't it be nice to read a black person? <laughs> These are conversations that weren't really happening, as far as I remember, in the 90s. In, in Certainly weren't when I was an undergraduate, which was, I'm pretty much the same age as these kids are supposed to be. So, and I don't remember those conversations being had very widely. Um, and certainly not when I was an undergrad. Um, so there's this very kind of self-aware um, engagement with identity, with feminism that, um, you know, there's obviously references to feminist texts and, you know, Kat is presented as a feminist. It's not um, made fun of. Um, it's, it's kind of, there's a sort of sly kind of humour that's there in terms of the, the um, film's feminism, but it's not a problem for the film per se. So, yeah, I, th I found it quite, it holds up. It really holds up. And it's quite delightful. I think the performances are great. I absolutely love um the opening scene with um is she the principal or the guidance counselor she's the principal isn't she i think she's the principal she's, alice, she's you know, the alice and jenny yeah with her <laughs> yeah she's quite it's obviously scary. writing while speaking to <laughs> students um i thought it was really funny really clever um and yeah there's nothing there's not a sort of datedness about it like you're both saying i mean it's obviously in the 90s but it's not cringy at all in fact um, let's talk about it as an, as an adaptation, because we've already sort of talked about this a little bit. How does it function as an adaptation? What, what parts of Shakespeare's plays are picking up on and how successfully do you think it does that? We might start with Jimmy. Well, I think the, um, I mean, going off the whole, um, you know, Alice and Janie character, I think what it does do very, very well is pick up the, um, intricacies and um, quirkiness of the side characters. I mean, Shakespeare's characters are terrific. You know, he, he, he writes some of the best characters and he doesn't reserve the best material always for the lead characters, you know. So sometimes the smaller parts often get really, really juicy lines. And I think that's what this adaptation does particularly well. So you've got, I mean, I would love to go to a high school like that where the teachers are so quirky and so unique and so individualistic. You know, you've got the guidance counselor who's writing an erotic novel, uh, and that's what she does, you know, all her spare time. And it's really interesting because, you know, um, I think, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, it, was, uh, it might have been Steph Schumming and I were joking about writing uh, romance novels uh, as a way to supplement our income because, you know, they make so much money out of it. So it's, it's not that far-fetched from reality, I suppose. And it also shows teachers in a different light as well. So I really do like the English teacher. You know, I think he's a, a wonderful character uh, even his uh, you know when he jokingly says you know yes Shakespeare is a dead white male but you know he's he knows his stuff you know he, he knows his shit I think is what he says so so you're kind of like yeah look you know even though yeah yeah we, we hate this category of dead white male it doesn't mean that all dead white males are bad literature it's just mean that you know we're kind of bombarded but there is some genuinely good things there as well so I think that there's acknowledgement of that and I also even like little quirky things like the gym teacher who always gets injured there's a scene that I just had me rolling on the floor laughing for, you know, when she shoots the arrow and ends up shooting him in the, in, in the bomb. And she's having this conversation in the foreground and he's in the background there with this arrow sticking out of his butt and you know, sort of flailing about. And, you know, little things very like that. Very Shakespearean, very Shakespearean archery. Yeah. Exactly, very Shakespearean, yeah. you, know, you know, that kind of uh, humour, that, you know, uh, bawdy humour, that 
um, sometimes below the belt type of humor. I think that is the essence of, of Shakespeare, especially uh, Shakespeare's comedy. So I think the film does that particularly well to pick up some of those nuances that often gets uh, lost in translation because then people see Shakespeare and they think, um, you know, classical text, highbrow. They don't think that it could be actually really entertaining. And for its contemporary audience, it was this type of humour, you know. So we, we forget it because it's, it's kind of lost in our language. But for me, it's a really faithful adaptation from the perspective of the, the spirit of what the play was trying to do, as opposed to, you know, word for word what the play was trying to do, which a lot of the times I think people confuse with faithful adaptation. I don't think necessarily that's always the best faithful adaptation. So for me, this really worked because of those little things um, and, and that really um, makes it the sum of the whole film itself. Mm. Kirsten, what did you think about it as an adaptation? Um, I completely agree with Jimmy as far as the, um, the spirit of Shakespearean um, comedy. It, it, it just does it so well. And those side characters are just sensational. Um, you know, even I think Michael's one of my favourites. Um, he's, he's sort of a, a central character, but he's not the main love interest. Um, some of the funniest moments happen with him. I think he's the first one to describe Kat as the shrew. Um, and he says, you know, that's the shrew, the mewling, rampaging wench herself or something like that. But that, um, that description, which he's giving to Cameron, um, about Cat and that's what she is, is immediately undercut by that classic scene where he accidentally rides on his um, posty bike down that very steep hill, <laughs> right after saying, stay cool. <laughs> so he's just, it's such a slapstick form of humour, um, but he, I, I, it's just wrapped up in really important lines. That's, I, I think that's what I like so much. Every piece of humour in the film also plays a really important function. And I think it just um, tonally, it's just so perfectly nuanced, perfectly paced. Um, it, it's quite fast paced in areas and in other, other times um, it's quite earnest, um, particularly um, towards the end with um, Patrick and Kat. There are some really deep moments between them that I think are just perfectly set up by the way that the film has treated its, its other moments, its more fun moments. Um, what I find really interesting is what it does in terms of its feminism. So Cat, Catherine, obviously Shakespeare's Catherine, is a really interesting character and there's lots of debates about how, um, how progressive or how misogynistic is the treatment of her in the original. Obviously the treatment of her by Petruccio is horrendously misogynistic. Um, so in that way, the, you know, the film updates Patrick's, you know, courting of Kat. <laughs> That's very updated, uh, which, is, which is good. But uh, I think Catherine is, what I liked about the uh, original play is that Catherine is such a complex character. She's, she's, you know, shrews are everywhere in literature, the old nagging wife stereotype, the fishwife sort of thing. Um, but she, I think Shakespeare tries to explore why she's like that. What, like, what's her story? What makes someone be like that? Um, and there's a lot about her family in there and her relationship to her sister and her rejection of her sister's perfect prettiness and her ability to dazzle and court um, suitors. And we get that in the film still. Um, and the film really goes a lot further, I think, in exploring and justifying um, Kat's rage. That's what I love so much about the film. At no point is Kat's rage um, presented as something that is wrong or out of place or needs fixing. And Patrick actually, he doesn't try to get rid of her rage. If anything, he connects with her on that level um, in many ways. And that's what I like. I like that it's not your classic 90s makeover movie where you have, you know, a, a heroine at the beginning who is difficult or oh, ugly in the sense that she wears sweaters, big sweaters and has glasses and needs to take them off by the end of the movie and suddenly become beautiful. <laughs> Are you thinking of uh, She's All That? I am, I am. This is um, a storyline particularly irksome to young girls who wear glasses. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I like There's a good young girl who wears glasses there, Stephanie. Yes, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> I know, there's just something that rings so hollow about those those films. And that's what I like about this. There's nothing hollow about Kat. She's so complex. And the way Julia Stiles plays her as well, there's so much nuance, I think, in... She's, she's got, like, a deadpan kind of rage that isn't over the top. 
Um, we get her classic eye rolls. Her um, She descends into little catty sort of remarks back at her sister every now and then because she's not above being provoked. <laughs> There's just She's just so real, I think, to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think um, I, I just love, I love the ways that it um, updates a lot of the feminism and makes it, um, makes Kat justified, I think, in her rage and doesn't ask her to, to simmer down. Um, what Patrick's really asking her to do is just to like him, not necessarily to change her views on society or anything like that. Yeah, I like the way that the film doesn't assume that there's something wrong with Kat, um, that, you know, it's it's actually not about her changing in any significant way because she's still the same character at the end of the at the end of the movie as she is at the beginning. She's perhaps less rageful or perhaps she has somebody to share that kind of um, frustration perhaps with. But really her only problem is with stupid social expectations. Um, her problem is that, you know, she's upset about um, the ways in which women are treated in society, you know, fair enough. Um, she's, she doesn't want to um, be forced into a stereotype little box that, um, you know, everybody would have her in, fair enough. She gets angry at people when there's a justified reason to be angry at people, you know, again, fair enough. She's perhaps um, a little bit abrasive in the way that she treats, treats um, people sometimes, but again, that's not always the case. Um, we see her, we certainly have enough evidence of her being, you know, quite open and pleasant and funny. And she obviously has her kind of, you know, niches where she feels um, a little bit more comfortable. And again, fair enough. You know, there's not, it's not a story about her learning to be nice or something like that. And I feel like in a lesser film, the point of the film would be, you know, take a really simplistic approach to the play, which would be, you know, she needs to be nice. She needs to learn how to be a nice girl. And, you know, she learns through the love of a good man that, you know, to calm down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't ever do that. I, I completely agree. Um, and I think that's, for me, that's the, the biggest difference, I guess, in terms of adapting it, apart from, you know, time periods and context and things like that, um, is, the, is Patrick as a character. Um, because he, in the, in the play, he's pretty awful. Um, you know, his treatment of Catherine is horrendous. Um, it's abusive, manipulative, you know, it's trying to literally just tame this shrew. <laughs> um, but in, in the film, um, it, everything you were saying about sort of her character and her feminism, the, the first line between them is, is when Patrick bursts into the classroom and says, what I miss? And she says, oh, just the oppressive patriarchal values that dictate our education. And he just um, walks right out. I love it. He, he, yeah, he goes... <laughs> good and leaves and that's just that's his character in a nutshell but it's also hers and and it's it's just sets the context in which they are now courting that's the first line that they speak to each other and I also like that in terms of the growth and development that happens throughout the film predominantly for the first part of it it's his he changes first he's the first one to change he doesn't just stay himself and expect her to do all the changing he's not taming her in some ways he's being tamed he starts out as this this wild bad boy with all of these rumours, you know, that he ate a live duck, that he sold his liver on the black market, that he spent the last year in jail. Like, <laughs> there are so many rumours about him. And he's clearly embracing them all because he wants to propel people, much like Kat does. But for the longest time, Kat's resisting his advances and we see him genuinely changing as he's falling for her. And mm. I, like, I like the message there, I think, that, that he's changing too. You know, it's not a one-sided not a one-sided thing. And arguably he has to change more because, I mean, at the beginning he seems so disengaged with everything, whereas we know that Kat has her interests, you know, she's got music, she's got reading, you know, we often see her reading or we see her engaging with, you know, the indie rock circuit or whatever, um, whereas he just seems sort of like a really kind of driftless dude who doesn't really seem to care all that much or he looks at everything with a kind of, um, I don't know, detached irony, I suppose. Um, and he's the one who has to kind of learn to engage in a more kind of genuine way, whereas she already seems to have all that stuff sorted. She has a strong sense of herself and what she's interested in um, versus he's sort of just sort of rolling around, you know, being kind of cool and detached. Absolutely. And he gets consent. He, yeah. That scene in the car with the first kiss, he doesn't want to have their first kiss under false pretenses because he's been paid for that date and also because she's been drinking. She's, she was just vomiting. If Maybe that had something to do with it as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, so he's like, let's, 
maybe we should do this another time. And she gets upset by that. But the first kiss actually happens after she's busted him out of the detention. It's not a paid date. They're on equal terms. And she's indicated through um, helping him get out of there by flashing the, the PE coach <laughs> that she's interested in him. So I, I like that as well. Um, he, you know, I think you know, it it was quite um, progressive for its time in that way in understanding what we now take as, as you know, um, it, that it should be obvious. It's sort of consent around those dating scenarios. I absolutely agree. I think it's, that struck me as well, that issue of, of consent in, in her drunkenness and, and how he can't sort of take anything she says so seriously or as, you know, informed um, in that manner. Again, that struck me as so progressive for the 90s because, again, I don't remember those sorts of conversations happening, in at least in popular culture. Maybe they were happening in, in, in other venues, but I feel like most other 90s movies would have been like, oh, you know, this is hot and, and not kind of thought about it a little bit more deeply. Um, so, yeah, it just impressed me in how prescient it looked I think it wouldn't be out of, as a movie in terms of the way it deals with all those issues, it wouldn't look out of place now. Yeah, I completely agree. Jimmy, you're looking very contemplative. So let's, let's, oh, let's hear. Yeah, I was just thinking about, um, well, in terms of adaptations and how um, that uh, met with Shakespeare's original play. Because, uh, I mean, Tame of the Shrew has always been probably one of Shakespeare's most controversial play it's a really really problematic play because of the whole um uh, issues of misogyny there's you know uh, is it a misogynistic play or is shakespeare you know questioning you know misogyny you know, what is happening in this play because um you know the, the, the way it ended is really really problematic uh, and everything about it uh, up you know leading up to the ending is quite problematic as a result of that uh, but what i was thinking about while you two were talking actually was just simply um the idea of well how do you adapt um, something like that into a contemporary setting and still make it valid. And it struck me that maybe what Shakespeare was doing in his version of the play was, wasn't necessarily to make a message, which is where people are making the misogynistic claim about, you know, if he was putting a message that, you know, all crews or all women who are, you know, uh, opinionated should be you know, put down in this way, that's a message and that would then make the text misogynistic. But what if he wasn't doing that and what he was simply doing was reflecting to society what was current during that period. I mean, I think one of the things that the film doesn't adapt, which I can understand why I wouldn't adapt it, because I think it was doing something different to uh, what the play was doing, is the, the, the induction itself, you know, the, the play within a play, which is what the Tame of the Shrew, you know, is. Um, and if we look at the in, in induction, what we probably then see is a kind of a battle of the sexes, because um, in the the first part of the play in the induction, it's the man who's getting duped, you know, and his wife is running the show. And then the play within the play, it's the reverse of that. It's the man who's then trying to, you know, um, defeat the woman, the shrew, so to speak. So there is this battle of the sexes idea that's coming through. And I think in this adaptation, we're seeing something similar, but now transported into the 90s, you know, and into an environment where people can, um, you know, play out the scenes in this way. And it's a much, for us anyway, a much more, comfortable ground to to meet up on if we in in, in essence change the petruchio character because uh, of all the characters in this particular adaptation i think petruchio is the one who's probably least faithful to the original play you know as kirsten mentioned uh, he is a, a vile repulsive character in the play but in this one he's actually quite likable almost gentlemanly Actually, um, actually, probably gentlemen. helped along by the fact that he's played by Heath Ledger with that Ex smile. That exactly, he's <laughs> he's delightful. I just I, I forgot how delightful he was. He's just entrancing, <laughs> stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous. He just he has this roguish quality, this boyish yeah. roguish quality that manages to also have like a Labrador esque softness <laughs> to it that yeah. I think allows us to just take him. As, as kind of more in a playful way. Well, I'm also glad that the film gave him an excuse to have an Australian accent as well. Yes, so, I know. Yeah, that's, that's always uh, delightful. It's quite roguish in his, in his voice, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But in a way, that also kind of helps him, you know, because we can accept, I suppose, the Australian lad culture a little bit more than the, you know, maybe, you know, American jock culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that also you know, plays a big part. So I think, you know, a lot of it was very, very um, staged out or at least, you know, thought out uh, as a way of adapting, you know, back to my original point, which is the, the spirit of the play itself. 
So how do we transport this idea of, you know, well, let's examine the battle of the sexes, not from a Shakespearean context, but now in a 90s context. And so a lot of those themes, a lot of those issues that you two were talking about um, are the kind of things that we are talking about right now, you know, the kind of um, equality, you know, the, the people are meeting on common grounds as opposed to this battle where it's, it's pretty much about who gets the power here, you know, is it the male who's going to get the power in the relationship or is it going to be the female who's getting the power? What we want now is equality on the same footing as opposed to you know, a power struggle. Well, I think it, it helps to think about uh, adaptation as interpretation, because I think that what they're doing with the play is obviously they've changed a whole lot of things, none least of which is the setting. I mean, obviously, a lot of things have to change. And certainly our tolerance for a Petruchio who behaves like he does in the play is not going to be there. So they have to change that um, in order to make it at all work. But I think that what it's doing is perhaps picking up a, a potential adaptation, a potential, sorry, interpretation of the play that says, okay, you could read this as a misogynist play about, you know, a woman who has to be kind of brought down or, or you know, made to be more compliant. But there's another way you can read the play, which is that she gets one up on everybody and that she knows exactly what she's doing. And that's certainly not, that's not an interpretation I've made up. A lot of people have argued that over the years, that she's, basically bullshitting him at the end of the play and that she knows exactly what she's doing in order to get some measure of power. So I think that, I don't think this adaptation is necessarily taking up that, that, that interpretation in an unproblematic way, but perhaps it's reflecting um, a different way again of, of reading the play and thinking about the play that, that, as Jimmy says, gets away from that kind of straight reading or a kind of a reading that supposes that Shakespeare had a kind of, like one reading that he wanted people to get out of because like of an agenda. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why people read Shakespeare. It's because he doesn't give you any easy answers. He doesn't, it's not like you can close a Shakespeare play and go, well, the moral of the story was X, you know, there's no play that I can think of by him. Um, at least that I've read and I've read most of them, I think that where you can kind of have a, a kind of easy take home message. You know, there is, there's so much ambiguity in all his plays. So I don't think it's, it's cutting against the play to have a more kind of a quality-minded adaptation of the play. I think it's just reflects how capacious Shakespeare is, how um, open he is to, to so many kinds of different interpretations. And, you know, we've all said a few times that this, this movie is so... Um, aligned to kind of shape the spirit of Shakespeare's play and yet there's so much that's different about it you know how can those two things um exist in alignment and I think quite easily because Shakespeare allows them to be you know yeah and, and I think it's also a sign of how progressive he is as a writer too that the character of Katerina survives so well you know she is actually quite a modern woman mm, um, absolutely. yeah a modern woman thrown in a renaissance setting um, and in a way, that's the, the problem with the play itself. But transported to the 90s setting, she suddenly, you know, she fits really well, you know. And so her character, I think, has uh, translated incredibly well. And, and that's a, a sign of you know, his, in a way, his genius as a, as, as a writer as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that's what I love so much about her character is that she's so complex. Shakespeare gives her reasons for being the way she is. And this is just fleshed out in so much more detail um, with Kat in the film. Um, and what I like about that as well, like we were saying about some other um, 90s teen films around the same time that don't really give their heroines much of a, uh, a reason um, or, a, or a believable backstory. I like that Katz is actually rooted in her experience of society. She doesn't just reject it for the sake of it. She has her reasons and they're quite serious ones, um, you know, to do with Joey Deep Me Donovan or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever his um, moniker was, but, you know, of the way he treated her, um, his misogynistic actions towards her. And so that's the reason behind um, the way she is. And she has, so all, I think all of that complexity is explored in the film. And she has one of the most iconic um, and entertaining introductions um, in 90s teen history in the opening sort of scenes of the film. I love this opening as well. Like we're, we're all used to um, the the amazing song playing over a panning sort of sweep of the, the city of, of a bright sunny day in America. We're all used to those kinds of things. Um, Jack Clueless does something really similar. 
Um, but I love that the, I think it's the um, Bare Naked Ladies, One Week, that song's playing, it's all boppy and there are four girls in a car just bopping along. And then suddenly um, a car pulls up next to them and the, the song is completely drowned out by the Joan Jett's bad reputation and it's Cat in her car. <laughs> and we also get, uh, I think, the first eye roll of the movie there as well in that scene. I just, it's such a cool way um, to set her apart from society to show who she is. The lyrics for that song, Bad Reputation, are perfect for Kat. Um, you know, it's, it's that sort of um, positively, enjoyably raging feminist <laughs> anthem. Um, so uh, there's just so much there that I, I really like about her and, and her journey as well. There was one thing that, um, that I, I've never managed to make my mind up and that's the very last scene of the film where finally she and Patrick get their kiss um, by the car and she says you know you can't just buy me a guitar every time you screw up and he says yeah I know but you know there's maybe drums and maybe one day a tambourine and that's all funny and he kisses her again and then she tries to say something else but he stops her by kissing her and that's where the film ends and and yeah like the, the camera pans back and it's all romantic and yay they're together but on the other hand she's just been silenced by his romantic advances and i never have been able to quite get my head around that well i suppose that's the the taming moment in the in the taming of the shrew you know so that's the shrew getting tamed you know so maybe it's it's, it's an attempt to try to stay you know it's true to to the actual play itself in in a uh, playful comedic way uh, for me that the scene that i've never been able to reconcile was actually the scene just before that, of her doing the um, Shakespeare sonnet, you know, her writing, you know, and I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mails for this, but <laughs> I, I never, I never warmed up to that scene. I wanted to like it. I really, really wanted to like that scene, but I just, <laughs> <laughs> it just it makes me cringe. It's one of the few moments in is the it scene. Public is it public poetry? It's not the public. I, I think it's. Maybe it's just the badness of the, the poetry itself. Like, it's just, I didn't... Yeah, you know, I think she could come up with a better sonnet than that. Exactly. You know, I thought, you know, she, <laughs> she's she's portrayed as such an intelligent, you know, artistic, creative woman. And then she creates this kind of mediocre, almost puerile version of Shakespeare's sonnet. And I'm just there going, that's, that's the best you can come up with. Boo, Jimmy. Um, I know, I know. She's I know. hot. I know she's an 18 year old heartbroken (laughs) I know maybe I'm expecting too much but it was just it's such a cynic I know well (laughs) that scene just didn't work for me because I just found it a little bit too cheesy and especially in a film that is so original in its approach to other things um that for me felt formulaic that was one of the few moments that for me actually felt quite formulaic and I thought "Mm, I would have liked something a little bit better so I was left (laughs) a little bit disappointed uh, as a result of, of that I have to confess, I'd never thought about the final scene in that way, Kirsten. I, maybe I kind of hadn't noticed it or didn't think about it. But now that I'm thinking about it, I, 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 want, to, I want to give the film the benefit of the doubt because I love it so much. And I kind of think that maybe that's an indication of, like, their relationship, that they're going to banter and, you know, be this kind of, um, I don't know, very equal... Um, partnership of equals relationship going forward and so they're going to you know bitch at each other and kiss and bitch at each other and kiss and that's going to be the kind of pattern of their relationship so that's my kind of um kinder <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> like it's also, I tried to see it <laughs> it's also problematic it's also problematic uh, to the extent that um he's suggesting that the the way to you know um nullify her or to mollify her is to buy her things so well look if, if it works guitar, it works. drums it's <laughs> Whatever it is, it's you know, partial to a guitar every now and then. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, as long as you get a guitar. No, I'm not partial to guitar. I'm partial to presents. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know, some shoes, handbag. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I think. I mean, also, like, look, he's joking, and and he knows he can't buy his way out. And I think that that's. I mean, again, he's just using the money that he got from dating her in to give back to her kind of way. Yeah. So that didn't strike me as particularly. I don't know, offensive, but maybe it's just because I'm a chronic capitalist consumer and <laughs> I like presents and things and having things and not not having things. So maybe yeah. 
It's just that she's, she's like, she's just trying to get a new sentence out. It's either, like she says, and you can't even, you know, it's about something else, but he doesn't let her get it out. I mm. do try to see it that way. I'm like, yes, mm. they're playful. And maybe he's helping her realize that she doesn't have to object to everything or mm. always angrily voice everything. And, and she's doing it in a playful way anyway. But I just, for me, it was just hard because the movie had been so pitch perfect the whole way through. And then this just one little subtle suggestion for me that, Perhaps, and perhaps it's because our class had a debate about it in year 11 when we studied it. <laughs> um, you know what you're like in year 11, you absolutely tear the movie apart and analyze every little shred. Um, but that was one that we were sort of stuck on because it just, for me, doesn't quite fit the rest of yeah. the film. But uh, uh, honestly, apart from that one, it's like what, like 0.1% of the film, the rest of it I think is perfect. <laughs> yeah, and you know, what I was struck by too rewatching it is that it doesn't make Bianca um, an idiot. It doesn't make her the kind of lesser sister or the least, the, you know, the, the airhead, the bimbo. Um, she's a bit more kind of conventional in her desires and interests than, um, than Kat, but she's certainly as rounded as Kat and Kat realises that and she's not um, dismissive of her sister. She's close to her sister. She's considerate of her sister um, and vice versa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That for me is that's where a lot of the film's critique of feminism really comes in. So as much as we were saying that that um, Kat's rage against society is justified and she isn't asked to change, I think that's true. But where she does have to grow is in her internalized misogyny, basically, mm. that makes her despise her little sister's girliness and yeah. her desire to be popular and her falling for guys like Joey. Um, you know, and this is where. Because because Kat also hasn't told Bianca her history with Joey. Yeah, and she said right. it's because she wants her to make up her own mind. But at the same time, she's withholding a truth from her sister, because, partly because she sort of despises everything her sister represents. And I think that's where, yeah, like you're saying, by the end, that's one of the most beautiful um, character growths and, and relationships sort of coming together of the film, maybe more than the romantic relationships, is the sisters finally having each other's backs. Yeah, and, and the message isn't that, you know, a more kind of conventional, like, girly femininity, I suppose, isn't lesser or stupid or wrong. You know, her sister is different from her, but just because she's more interested in things like going to the, the prom and, you know, she wants to um, have a kind of more conventional social life and she's not interested in the same things as Kat is interested in, she's not an idiot. And I feel like so many teen movies and so many rom-coms have, you know, the heroine who is the person that you're supposed to kind of align yourself to and then the friend who is kind of lesser and this yeah. film doesn't do that and as you say Kirsten part of what she needs to learn actually her, her sort of major thing that she needs to learn is that actually it's okay to be a girl like that yeah absolutely wrong with her sister yeah because I mean so that yeah Bianca is quite a complex character even if at the surface of it we initially are presented she's presented to us as this kind of teeny bopper stereotype you know when um we, we first encounter her and I think it's Michael says oh you know she's she's deep and then they <laughs> we cut to the that dialogue where they're talking about there's a difference between like and love because I like my sketches but I love my Prada backpack <laughs> as far as I'm concerned that is extremely deep well, you know, they're, they're having this philosophical conversation, um, yes. you know, and the reason that her friend Chastity doesn't uh, love her product backpack is only because she doesn't have one. Well, so, I understand. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Well, <laughs> the, the argument that makes perfect sense for me is when you say, you know, you can be underwhelmed, you can be overwhelmed, but can you just be whelmed? A very good question. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently, yes, you can in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what I love about uh, Bianca as well is that basically once she realises the truth for herself basically about Joey, and this isn't because she's heard rumours about him and her sister or anything, she realises he's a, a douchebag all on her own, mm. uh, which isn't hard to do, but she does. And then um, suddenly, you know, when she's interested in Cameron because she realises he's more genuine, um, suddenly she's able to speak perfect French more than he does and he's meant to be tutoring her. Um, and then, you know, that scene where she actually punches Joey, um, Joey punches Cameron and he falls to the ground and then Joey turns around and, and Bianca punches him twice. That's for you know, my sister and that's for my date. Um, you know, so those scenes are really lovely. Um, and, and again, signal that sort of coming together of the sisters while Kat softens a bit 
towards Bianca. Um, Bianca, um, you know, her sister's feisty, um, you know, spirit has rubbed off on her in a way that we cheer for. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so clever. Another little running joke that I just absolutely loved was the father. He's um, so good. And he's and he's very um, convincing reasons to be scared about <laughs> his, his daughter's dating. <laughs> and he's Worrying like, that they're out there about to be impregnated. Yeah, well, you know, when he's delivering twins to a 15-year-old girl and <laughs> worrying about <laughs> teen pregnancy all the time, you think, well, look, makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it, it kind of does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you know, he, he goes about it in an unconventional way, making them wear that fake sort of pregnant belly around just to hammer home the message. Yeah. Um, I love the humour around that, but also I love that that also presents an opportunity for both girls to just speak really frankly about sex, about the reality of it, um, and show that it's not something to be embarrassed about or hide from your parents. They just speak about it like it's normal. And their father's the one completely overreacting. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think that presents sex and teenagers, which is sometimes handled in a really awkward way. I like that it's just really frank, really honest, really open. Um, and I, that, that to me feels quite modern as well. Mm. I mean, I also like, yeah, I mean, the, the father's a good you know, comic relief and everything, but I also like that uh, at the end there is um, reasoning offered him from, for him. So he has that wonderful speech with, um, with Cat Ways, you know, so, you know, uh, he, you know, children grow up so quickly that, you know, he just wanted just a little bit longer if they could stay as children, you know, with Cat. Mm. He never had that opportunity because, you know, she was, she knew her mind at the age of, you know, 12 or whatever it was already. But Bianca sort of still lets him. So that's why he sort of allows it. Like he just wants to hold on to um, her as a child for just that little bit longer. And I think that's a, a sentiment that a lot of parents can understand, you know, just wanting your child to stay a child for just that little bit longer because before long, you know, you're going to lose them. And in this case, he, he does, you know, he, he will lose Cat at the end of, that year she's going to you know, go to Sarah Lawrence and, you know, she's going to leave home and everything. So I, mm. I think, you know, it does flesh him out um, a little bit towards the end. And I do like that much more complex relationship then between the father and, and the two daughter and the understandings to why he does overreact the way he does, but not in a mean spirited way, but more of a, you know, look, I, it's a little bit selfish for me, but I do just want you to be you know, children for just that little bit longer, you know, if possible. Yeah, it's a sweet sort of overprotectiveness. And he's got hilarious lines, um, like when he's listing the rules for his party, you know, the, the classic no sex, no drugs, um, and then no ritual animal slaughters of any kind. <laughs> Damn, that puts a crimp in our plan. <laughs> yeah, it's just so delightfully over the top. Um, and uh, there's a naivety to what he's saying, what he thinks kids get up to as well, that's juxtaposed against his daughter's just really down-to-earth rational understanding of actually what happens at a, a, a teen party. Mm, I know. <laughs> There's such great 90s touches too. Remember when he's doing those um, crunches with that, that contraption? <laughs> Don't you remember those being huge in the 90s? Those, those like, sit-up things? What, what are they called? Um, I can't remember what they're called. Probably just, like, an ab cruncher or something. Like an ab cruncher or something. It was a very <laughs> kind of 90s thing. And I, I was in year 10, I'm pretty sure, when this came out. And don't you remember, Kirsten, that that was like Bianca's formal dress? With yes, the, yes. was like the, the gold standard of formal dresses for like two to three years. Yeah. The, <laughs> the little midriff top and the long skirt. I just remember yeah. that was like the ultimate formal outfit. Yeah, in, I probably could have done with a few less midriff tops um, looking yeah. back, especially when, when um, paired with cargo pants, which were like low, low hip huggers. <laughs> We will revisit the whole of midriff in the nineties. We will revisit these problems when we get to Clueless, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any final thoughts about um, ten things before we wrap up for today? Um, I would like to shout out. We we meant Jimmy mentioned the um, the side characters, and even though Michael isn't so much of a side character, um, I want to mention Mandela. Um, so that's Kat's best friend. She's the one who loves Shakespeare, and I find that the two of them are such a that's where the play, uh, the, the film really makes a strong nod to Shakespeare because mm. Mandela's obsessed with Shakespeare. She's, you know, um, she more than likes him. They're involved. That's what she <laughs> said. Um, and I think as well, though, those two together, um, it's just such a minor, minor part of the film of Michael's courting of Mandela via Shakespeare. But I think 
um, it's, it's kind of like the unsung romantic story of the film because this is a guy who's not asking that Mandela change. You know, people might think she's strange because she's obsessed with Shakespeare and that's all. He just embraces it. He becomes Shakespeare. He sends her a Shakespearean sort of dress and he speaks in Shakespearean language and she, she falls for him because of that. And I really like that. I think it's kind of this, he is just on the sidelines, a little positive model of what happens when you just let a woman be. Yeah, that's right. I love that side, that whole subplot. And remember, she's played by um, Susan May Pratt, who was in um, Centre Stage, you know, the best goddamn dancer in the American Ballet Academy. So yeah, that's my heart already. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else you wanted to to add, Jimmy? Um, No, I was, Kirsten actually kind of stole my my, my point too. I actually really love that, that romantic um, coupling. And what I was going to add to that was that, See, I, I never really kind of bought the uh, romance between um, Bianca and Cameron. I always thought that was, you know, slightly superficial and kind of problematic. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, with the the, the problem with Kat and um, Patrick was slightly problematic at the end too. You know, and for me, the mo- most pure relationship was actually this little side story. But in a way, that's also what I love about Shakespeare, that um, it's, it's not always about the main story that's the most interesting part. Sometimes some of those side characters are really fascinating. Some of those little side plots are really fascinating too. And again, you know, at the end here, we've got a nod to Shakespeare because at the end, it's a triple marriage um, in the ending. Uh, mm. And at the end of this one, we've got a triple couple and just one of those couple happens to be inspired by Shakespeare. So it's a, it's these lovely little in-jokes that, that I love, um, you know, and, the, and even the fact that, you know, they had to write a Shakespeare sonnet <laughs> as the, you know, the, the last little bit of love letter or the last little bit of um, love scene involves a retelling of a Shakespeare sonnet itself. So th- there's lots of these really lovely touches. And I think, you know, the more you watch it and the more you read the play as well, you, the more you actually see this and it actually enhances your enjoyment of the film a lot more when you actually see it. So it's one of those that you don't actually need to read the play in order to enjoy the film. But mm. if you do read the play, it acts as a wonderful little compliment to the film or, and vice versa as well. So you can sort of see, here's another reading, here's another adaptation, here's another way to think about the play that's also really, really interesting and really, really clever. So uh, it's definitely a recommendation for me, despite that cringeworthy little poem at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was just thinking about, another little moment that I love that we haven't talked about um, is when Mr Morgan reads some Shakespeare and he reads it as if it's... Yeah. Of, hip-hop, yeah. I love that. He, yeah, sort of a rappy hip-hop kind of um, tone. And I love that he's able to bring that to his reading, but also that we're asked to appreciate Shakespeare as a kind of um, performance but also as a kind of um, music and the sound and rhythm of Shakespeare is is kind of taken I mean it's a little moment and you know it's not like they turn to the camera and say learn now but it allows you to kind of think about Shakespeare in a different way. Yeah and I wonder whether that moment has inspired um, something that's uh, the kids really love at the moment which is thug notes so, I love hug notes. <laughs> I love hug notes as well. <laughs> I wonder whether that has something to do with, you know, kind of yeah, Shakespeare for contemporary audiences, because I think one <laughs> of the things that you know, does get lost is that people think of Shakespeare, as I mentioned earlier, as classic literature, and they don't yeah. understand, you know, he was actually popular. That's literature. right. I always say that to students. I'm like, we don't, we experience Shakespeare as like, we take him very seriously and we sit there quietly and in dark theatres and we nod, you know, we clap at the end very decorously. And that's not at all how people would have um, experienced Shakespeare in his own time and not how he would have expected them to. In fact, he probably would have been really disappointed if everybody sat there in silence and kind of just clapped very politely at the end and left. I mean, that's not what he wanted. Um, And it's not how he would have thought about the audience's reception. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think there's this there's this line that sort of wink and you miss it that Cameron says um, to Michael when they're getting ready for the party and Michael's getting his tie on, he's got his business shirt and his slacks. Um, and he says, how do I look? And um, Cameron says, you look like my great uncle Milton. Um, and I think that's a Milton reference. I think we have to take it as a Milton reference. And again, I feel like this is suggesting you know, Shakespeare's often put up there with Milton as something highbrow, very literary, very, you know, only for a certain set of people. But, you know, this isn't, you know, Milton is a great Uncle Milton. He looks stuffy and, you know, compared to Shakespeare, who's who's at the teen party. He's the bawdy, humorous, um, you know, teen. So I, I really liked that that little key reference. Course, that- 
sorry, of course, Shakespeare is at the teen party because Michael is Shakespeare later on. Exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> he, he makes the journey from Milton to Shakespeare. <laughs> I think that's three enthusiastic endorsements of the film. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, do you know, it's, we've talked a lot about the humour and stuff, but I think there are some really earnest little moments as well. Um, and two things that I, I want to um, just mention, because I think it's really nice advice that we can still use. Even it's a 1999 film, but this advice is really good to just remember. So Kat says, I'm a firm believer in doing something for your own reasons and not somebody else's. So very that's good. number one. That's a very good thing to remember. Pat, in one of his most earnest moments to Cameron, don't let anyone ever make you feel like you don't deserve what you want. Go for it. I think these two things are so nice to remember um, going forward. It's just such a, an affirming movie for me. I think that's why I like watching it so many times. Um, you know, I do, re I genuinely do watch it quite regularly. It's not, it's not daily, it's not weekly, but you know, it, it does happen a few times a year. <laughs> it's the kind of movie that you can't sort of help like just smiling through. Like I was just sitting there on the lounge and like I was, you know, laughing at, at points, but I was just smiling. It just makes you feel good. It's so good. That was yeah. a good film for lockdown. Yes, a very good film for lockdown. I mean... Yeah, it's amazing. And it's got, it's got one of the best soundtracks. Um, oh, like every song, it's iconic. And such a good use of the soundtrack too. It's such a tightly knit film. It's just perfect. I, I forgot that the, um, the, the spider bait song uh, was in it. Um, you know, that, that sunshine on my window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't that just love that song? It, it is, you know. I mean, I remember listening to that song so often. Then when it came on, I was like, oh my God, this is so 90s. It, it, it's like bringing flashbacks. So, you know, oh, yeah. I, I do love the soundtrack. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just watching this film is just being 16 again, isn't it? It's, you know, like I was the exact same age as these characters. It was just, I don't know, propelled me back into that world. I didn't think about viruses <laughs> at all. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me once again to talk about a fantastic film that everybody should watch if they haven't already watched it. Um, we'll be back in two weeks to discuss another teen film. I don't know if we've decided which one yet, but we have a list of, I think, four. So it'll be one of those. <laughs> another teen film based on classic literature. Um, thanks again to Jimmy and Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. If you could rate and review us on Apple uh, Podcasts, that would be great. And send us a note at fromthelighthouse.org or you can um, tweet at us at MQ English. All right. Bye.